Hello. Today I wanted to talk about the concept of discernment. You know, I get asked often, uh, how can we know what's true? You know, and there are so many competing ideas out there in the wide world and competing information. And uh, the old rule used to be that, well, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Uh, but now, in today's uh, globalized society with um, everybody having access to the Internet and everybody having uh, an equal say in what's happening uh, around the world, uh, many, so many ideas are being thrown out there uh, that even uh, the idea of having a, a set of facts that everybody agrees on is... Is, is almost nonsense. We, we don't have a set of facts that everybody agrees on. And this has led to many embracing uh, the concept that there is no actual truth. Well, you have your truth and your lived truth and I have my lived truth. And uh, that's a really interesting position to have come to. Um, even I've even heard this, uh, this position espoused by Christians. And of course, uh, this is exactly what we fought against all through the, you, you went into the age of enlightenment in the 19th century, and then coming into the 20th century, you had this uh, reaction against that and the age of relativism. And in relativism, and uh, uh, we, we began to fight against this idea that there was anything such as absolute truth. And uh, and in our society, uh, rebelled against this concept of absolute truth, and you ended up all into the um, uh, sexual revolution of the 1960s, where if it feels good, do it, and if it's good for me, that's great, and if it's good for you, that's great. And um, the idea of truth, of actual morality, or that there being any foundation of of uh, of God and reality in this world that we could we could base our actions on and our opinions on and our lives on. Um, it was all relative, you know, and you ended up with a whole idea of um, situational ethics, you know, so that right and wrong now we're all relative. And in this situation, it might be fine to do X. And in that situation, it might be fine for you to do X, but I'm not going to do X. And you have a huge discussion about what is right and what is wrong. And the basis for this is my opinion or our shared values. And it's no longer based on, well, God has created us. He's created the world with certain laws in a certain way. You know, even going back to the Declaration of Independence, where uh, our, our founding fathers in America said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, in, in today's discussion, we don't hold any truths to be self-evident. Everything is your own truth. Well, obviously, I hold this to be untrue. <laughs> I'm going to contend that uh, there is right and there is wrong. There is a God who has created the universe with certain laws and moral laws. Uh, in as much as we violate those laws, uh, we do harm for ourselves and we don't flourish. In as much as we agree with those laws and do what's in accordance with those laws, uh, we do good for ourselves uh, and we do and we have the opportunity to flourish. And so I think that... Uh, now the question comes, this word discernment. How do we discern 
what's true and what's not true. As we get into the, the political debate in America, and indeed not just in America but around the world, um, we're confronted with a lot of different ideas. Um, we're, there's an, a huge attack on the media, there's a huge attack on science, uh, as we've been challenged to believe that we can't trust anybody. Well, except for the person that apparently is talking to you at the time, you can trust them, uh, but nobody else. So how do we discern in all of this? And I found some uh, interesting uh, verses in the Word. Um, Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he says an interesting thing here. In the beginning, he's talking to the Philippians. He says in verse 9 of chapter 1, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Verse 10, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you see what he's praying here. He's praying that your love may abound more and more. Abound with what? You know, so it's not just an abstract concept of love, um, but your love is going to abound with knowledge and discernment. He recognizes that just uh, the concept of love as just good feelings towards everybody is not going to lead us in a productive way. It's not going to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ at the end of the day if we're basing our lives, our decisions on shifting sand that's just going to uh, come crashing down in the next storm. If we're going to love well, if we're going to serve God well, and if we're going to bring glory and honor to him in our lives and our decisions and the things that we do, then we're going to have to have knowledge and discernment. And, and Paul is praying this for the Philippians, that they would have knowledge and discernment. So we need discernment more than ever today. So what else is going to help us? Paul recognizes that this is a challenge then. Um, and, and look here at, um, Paul's not the only one. If you look to Hebrews in chapter 5, he, he's talking about these basic principles uh, that you need. And um, he's, he's saying to the, to the writer of the Hebrews, is saying uh, to his listeners, listen, you guys should be way more mature than you are, but you still need milk, not solid food. For everyone, but but you need to move on from that. He says, everyone in verse 13 of chapter 5, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Saying, you guys need to grow up. You need to become more mature. And then he says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Wow. I mean, I don't know if you catch the diss there, but he is really dissing on the Hebrews. You guys are a bunch of children because you're children and you, you need milk, not solid food. We can't even go on and talk about really deep spiritual um, conversations because you're not ready for that. And why aren't you ready for that? Solid food, he says in verse 14, is for the mature. 
Well, who's mature? How do you decide who mature is? Well, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Well, I don't know about you, but I would rather not be on the other side of that insult. I'd rather not be the child. And so now the question comes, cool, I want to be discerning, I want to be wise, uh, I want to be knowledgeable, and apparently I'm going to need discipline for that. He says, is the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil? So how do we distinguish good from evil, and how do we know what's right? How do we practice this concept of discernment? And uh, there's one other verse that talks about discernment that's going to help us. And it's in Corinthians. And if we go to Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul is now talking to the not very wise but very foolish Corinthians at this point. He says in verse 18, we'll start in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay, we've heard that verse before, we understand it. That the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who believed and being saved, it's the power of God. We'll talk about more of what that means in a second, but what's he going to go on and say in verse 19 is interesting to us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Hmm. So there's people who say they're discerning, in their, and, 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 and Paul is quoting Isaiah here, saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, he goes on to talk about the folly of the world is those who are, uh, through the, the power of their own reasoning and their own mind, coming to a, a conclusion of being able to uh, take life by the, uh, by the horns, as it were. So take the bull by the horns is the old phrase. So it's my life, I'll live it, I'll look out for number one, I'll take care of myself. But he says, he begins in verse 18 and then follows up after uh, the verses that I've read uh, by saying, but the wisdom of God is the power of the cross. And what's the cross? The cross is the laying down of your life. So Jesus lays down his life and in the, the sacrifice of his life, he has the victory. The world would say you get victory by marshalling your forces and taking what you want by force. And in, 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 in the world's line, in the world's thinking, uh, what the Messiah should have done was he should have come from God, marshaled an army, destroyed the Roman legions, taken over by force with the sword, and taken what he wanted. In fact, this is almost exactly what the, what the devil offered Jesus in uh, the temptations in the desert. Remember when he comes, 
the, the devil comes to Jesus at the end of 40 days of him fasting and praying in the desert. You know, the devil comes and says, I'll give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And, and how does the devil do this? Well, this is the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world, you would take by force the things that you want. You, you want something, you work for it. This is the wisdom of the world. And it's not that it's not true. It's that there is, there is a higher wisdom. And the higher wisdom is the wisdom of the cross. And, and, in, and in 1 Corinthians here, Paul is saying that, that God is going to thwart the wisdom of the world uh, and demonstrate the power of the cross. Uh, and the, the world's wisdom is folly, grasping for yourself, doing for yourself, looking out for number one is folly. And it's only by sacrifice and laying down your life, giving up your rights, that you're going to gain anything. All right. And true discernment now is based on these things. All right. Now let's, let's go back to discernment. What does this have to do with discernment? It has everything to do with discernment. How are you going to know right from wrong? How are you going to know good from evil? As you, as you walk through this world, as you listen to others, if you engage in politics, if you engage in um, local projects in your neighborhood, as you engage with your neighbors and your family, as you engage with this world, how do you make decisions knowing that the swirl of facts, not facts, are all around you? And I would say that the concept that you're looking for is discernment. And the key to discernment is the heart. It's a heart that has uh, love and self-sacrifice at, at its core. These are the things that are true. When you're looking at a problem and you're trying to decide the way to go, your answer is found in your heart. Which of those things, which of the two paths that you're faced with, or the multiple paths that you're faced with, lead to self-sacrifice, a denial of rights, and a service to others, and which does not? And we twist those things, and those things can be found very complicated, and which is why I think uh, uh, Hebrews says, well, you've got, to, you've got to practice this thing. You've got to practice this concept of discernment. So let's, let's look at... Um, what discernment doesn't look like. Let's look at some of what I call the logical fallacies that keep us from discerning correctly. All right. So if I'm faced with somebody and I see that there's um, proposing uh, uh, either a, a problem to me or a solution to me uh, as we're faced with an issue and the question is how do I know what's true? All right, the very first thing that I want to say out of the box is the first thing that I'm looking for are the contradictions. All right? When, you, when, when somebody puts forth an argument, I don't know what's in their heart. Do they really believe what they're saying? And there's two things that can be happening. When, when somebody uh, comes to me with an argument, they can be arguing something that they've thought deeply about and that they've come to a conclusion about and now I'm trying to gauge whether they were right in coming to that conclusion or not. Or 
they could be coming to me with somebody else's argument. They could have, I could be talking to actually the victim of somebody who has made a bad faith argument and now they've bought into this argument. And, uh, and, and, and so now what I want to look for though is the contradictions. So as somebody comes at you and they begin to make an, a case, if, if a thing is whole and has integrity, then it's solid all the way through. So the question is, is the argument solid all the way through? And, as, and so what you want to start looking for now is, uh, is uh, logical fallacies. So as we look at, at rhetoric and fallacies, why is that important? Because when we have rhetorical fallacies going on, it means that there's not integrity in the argument. It doesn't necessarily mean the argument is false. The end of all logical fallacies and any list that you look at is the fallacy fallacy. And that is that if an argument has a fallacy in it, then it is inherently untrue. That's not necessarily that that in itself is a fallacy. I could be making a poor argument. And yet the thing that I'm arguing for is still true. I'm just doing a bad job of making the argument. So, but as we're trying to discern other people's arguments, uh, the first thing we look for is, does it have integrity? In other words, is it solid all the way through? Because if it's not solid all the way through, it's going to have contradictions in it. My very best example of this is the global warming argument. Years ago, we were confronted with this concept of global warming and immediately uh, there was some pushback on it and people began to question the science and question the papers that are being written and 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 there was this big discussion about whether global warming was real or not and whether it was man-made or not because if it's real that's going to uh, control uh, what decisions we make going forward and if it's man-made that controls the solutions to it uh, that are going forward and what we should be doing about it. So it's, in, it's important to know the facts and to, uh, if you're going to come up with a solution to the problem, right? So as people were coming at me with this uh, argument about global warming, one of the things they were saying was uh, global warming is not happening. All right. The first thing uh, out of the, uh, the mouths of the opponents of global warning was, it's not happening. And the second thing that they'd say would be, um, the, re the reason the earth is getting warmer is that um, it's, uh, it's not man-made uh, problems, it's natural cycles. In, in the natural cycles of the earth, there are warmer and cooler periods. Now, do you see the problem? All right. You can make one or the other of those arguments, but if you make both arguments at the same time, which I have heard many times, uh, the first time was uh, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh over 10 years ago. Um, I was just wondering, I don't particularly like Rush Limbaugh because I don't think he makes good faith arguments. I don't even, I don't really believe he even believes what he's saying. I think he's making arguments to try to uh, coerce other people into making a decision. But his, my, his reasons for that are unclear to me. Why does he want us to believe what he is, is espousing when I don't think he believes what he's espousing? 
And the reason I don't think he believes it is because his arguments are self-contradictory, as they are in this case of global warming. On the same half an hour radio program, he purported that global warming was not happening. The world was not, in fact, getting warmer. He then turned around and said, the reason it's getting warmer is because of natural cycles. And you can't make both arguments at the same time and prove your point. The only pro point he proved to me that day was that he doesn't believe what he's saying. Because if he believes the world's not getting warmer, then he doesn't believe that it's getting warmer through natural cycles because he just told me it's not getting warmer. So either the world is getting warmer, but it's not man-made, and he's going to argue for a natural cycles argument, or it's not getting warmer, and our data just goes up and down and fluctuates, but it, they're with no pattern. Now, he, you, if you hold on to both of these at the same time, what I'm going to conclude as a listener is that this person doesn't believe their own argument, and now I want to know what they're pushing. Okay, what's behind it? If they don't believe the argument they're giving me, why are they putting forward what they're putting forward? What do they really believe? In other words, what's in their heart? And you say, well, you can't know what's in somebody's heart. Jesus disagrees with you just a little bit on that. And that is that he says, because what comes out of a man's uh, when he, uh, uh, mouth is coming forth from the heart. So when we listen to what other people are talking about, it's coming out of their mouths and it's, and it's betraying their heart. Now it's, 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 it's not, it's not easy to discern what's going on in somebody's heart. I certainly don't know everything about what uh, Rush Limbaugh is thinking as he's making this argument against us doing anything about global warming. It's clear to me that he doesn't want us to do anything about global warming. He doesn't think that government should move in any direction to, um, to stop global warming or to, to repair the damage that we've done to the, to, to the earth. He's, he's, it's clear to me that he doesn't want us to do that. It's not clear to me why. Is he, is somebody, you know, is an oil company paying him truckloads of money? Well, that's not been shown. Um, it has been shown that oil companies have put a lot of money since the mid nineties into, uh, science and scientists and scientific journals, uh, trying to, um, uh, muddy the waters and get us to not understand about global warming. Um, now once you accept the science of global warming, then what are, we, what are we supposed to do about it? See, that's another discussion. And the person with discernment is going to have to also look at uh, why are scientists writing the papers they're writing? Why are activists saying the things that they're saying? It's not, it's not easy. I'm not telling you that it's an easy thing to do. But I think that these are things that we have to practice our discernment on. And one of the things that helps us practice is the concept of logical fallacies. And so looking at the logical fallacies is important. The first thing I say is it has to have integrity. If I hear an argument with self-contradiction in it, I know already that person either doesn't believe what he's saying or he hasn't thought through what he's saying. 
and he's just accepted this argument from somebody else who doesn't believe what they're saying. Another example of this is uh, in the gun debate. It's very often that people will say, well, clearly um, uh, legalized guns and, and gun ownership is, is not <clears throat> lead to violence. And we know this because while there is violence in the United States, there's no violence, for instance, in Switzerland, where everybody also owns guns. To me, this is a really dishonest argument because the person who originally came out with this argument, who researched it and found out that, gosh, everybody in Switzerland owns a gun because they do their two years middle, uh, military service and then come out with guns, and they get to take their guns home. And I have a friend in Switzerland, his son, got to take his gun home, and he's got it at home, fully automatic uh, rifle right there in his house. Uh, what they don't mention is that he doesn't have any bullets for that gun. Uh, the bullets are on base. Uh, if he uh, is called back into service, uh, which is the reason that he has the gun, uh, then he runs back to the base, uh, they get their bullets, and then they're uh, relined up into the military to do their service in whatever emergency situation they're in. But they don't have bullets in the guns at home. Well, this is radically different from the situation in America. So the whole thing is a false equivalency. And false equivalency is when you try to make an argument and you say something is like something else, except it's not. You know, it's, it's uh, our, our um, response to those kinds of ar arguments is always, well, that's apples and oranges. You can compare oranges to oranges. Say this orange is bigger than that orange. Uh, this apple's better, sweeter than that apple but you can't compare apples and oranges. They're two different things. And if you try to compare them, you will lead to yourself to a conclusion uh, that's, that's, that's not true. In other words, well, we've discovered that this makes a, a healthier, bigger orange. Um, so we're going to do this for apples. Well, apples are, they grow in a completely different climate than oranges do. Uh, so, um, Everything about an apple is going to be different than about an orange. You, you shouldn't compare the two. You're not, your behavior at the other end of that comparison is not going to lead you to flourishing. It's going to lead to folly. And so, and why? Because you're not comparing a, a, the same thing. It's the same thing in this gun debate. Uh, and so now that catches my attention. All right, the discernment... Uh, vibe in me uh, starts starts resonating and I'm thinking wait a minute if the person who's uh, on the side of no gun reg regulations we don't have a gun problem in America and we shouldn't do anything about this uh, Second Amendment rights we're just gonna push that no regulation just Second Amendment just go forward don't change anything do something else in order to bring violence down in America. Okay, well, I'm, I'm listening. What is, your, what is your suggestion for bringing violence down in, in America? But if, you're, if your argument to me is, well, they have guns in Switzerland and they have guns in America, I'm going to respond with, that's apples and oranges. And worse than that, you know it's apples and oranges. All right? So often the person who's coming at me with this argument doesn't realize that the folks in Switzerland have guns but not bullets. And, uh, but once I inform them, I say, hey, dude, that's not actually a valid, valid argument. Uh, 
It doesn't mean your point's not true, but the argument that you're making is not true, right? Because it's an apples and oranges argument. It's not valid. So let's throw that one out and let's look at the situation again. Invariably, as I have had this experience talking with people about this issue, what comes back again and again is once I invalidate that argument, I turn around and there it is back on their Facebook post again a month later. There it comes back out of their mouth again a month later as we have the same conversation again and he brings up the same point again. I'm like, wait a minute. We know that's not true. So why are you bringing it up? Are you hoping that I forgot that it's not true? As you post it on Facebook or put it on, on social media in some other way, are you just hoping that, well, I'm not, they're not going to forget, uh, convince me, but they'll, they'll convince these other people who don't know the facts. So now I'm looking at, wait a minute, you're making a bad faith argument here. And what does that mean to me? It means that I believe your position is very weak. It means that you think your position is very weak. If your only argument is an argument that you know is not valid and you're just hoping other people don't know it's not valid, that's a pretty poor argument and a terrible place to stand. Stop standing there. Use discernment and either come up with a better argument that has integrity or reevaluate your position. And, and I think these are the things that we have to do. If we're going to have discernment, we need to reevaluate our positions and we need to come up with arguments that have integrity about in the environment, about um, violence in our land, about our own faith. Now, I work in a country uh, with a Muslim population. And most of those people, as I'm discussing religion with them, and I'm telling them about my faith in Jesus Christ, they're coming back at me with arguments that they have heard from people they don't even like. So people that they disagree with, like their local mullah who got this information from another mullah, who, what does that mean? You know, as I push back and I say, wait a minute, that argument isn't, isn't, doesn't hold water. You know, uh, one of the classic arguments that we often get is, as I quote the New Testament, they come back and they say, well, the New Testament's been changed. I say, well, how has it been changed? When did it get changed? Um, who changed it and why would they change it that way? And there's no answers to any of those questions because that argument isn't their argument. They're just repeating somebody else's argument that they have not thought deeply about at all. Now, for the people who have thought deeply about it, uh, they begin to equivocate in a hurry. And they begin to, to uh, another logical fallacy, move the goalpost. You know, and so every time I offer uh, a demonstration of the integrity of the New Testament, the fact that we have some very, very old manuscripts that, that predate even Muhammad as himself, the fact that Muhammad himself, both in the Quran and in the Hadith, encouraged his followers to read the New Testament, and why would he encourage them to read it if it's been changed? And they don't really have good answers to those questions. But at the end of the day, none of those debates that I've had with people change their opinion because their opinion 
is not based on the facts. Their opinion is based on an emotional response to, um, to their life around them. They're, they're, they have emotional ties to their friends, their family, their you think about their, they think about their fathers and their, their grandfathers, and they think about their heritage in the nation that they live in. And because of all of these factors, they are unable to change their position. The facts don't matter to them because they've made an emotional commitment to these other things. And now only as I present Jesus Christ to them as the way, the truth, and the life that he can address the issues that they really are facing, can they then move to change their position? Only when the pain in their life becomes great enough that they have to have a savior. Only then can they turn to Christ because a logical argument will not do it. But now for us who are followers of Jesus, how do we then discern? And I want to come back to 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul tells us that the, the, the wisdom of the world is folly, but it's the way of the cross. It's the way of self-sacrifice. In other words, so if I'm facing a situation where I'm in a, in a, in a debate about, let's go back to global warming. Now, if... I'm, uh, I begin to, to argue on behalf of global warming or against global warming, and I find that the facts are not lining up on my side. I find that I have engaged in a number of logical fallacies. Now, do I dig in and say, I'm not changing my opinion? Or do I say, you know, what? I'm going to have to open up here and, and consider another way of thinking about this? Uh, even my asking the question, is hugely important and it brings us back to Hebrews chapter 5 because he says we have to practice this concept of discernment so we need to come into our lives with discernment and we need to hold everything very loosely so that when I come to a concept like global warming am I going to hold on to the idea that I believe that I don't like the people on the other side of this argument I like the people on my side of the argument. Okay, cool for you. What does that have to do with the truth? Um, <laughs> it has been pointed out that many of our founding fathers were difficult people, uh, and some of them despicable people. Uh, but in their moment, as they wrote down, these truths are self-evident that all men are created equal written by a man who didn't practice what he just wrote. He had slaves. Thomas Jefferson had slaves. And yet he was uh, saying all men are created equal. Now, if I was there at that time, would I then have sided with the crown and said, Thomas, you're a slave owner and I hate slave owners. And so I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say. Now, that brings us to a huge, huge problem that we have and that we continue to have. And that is that we base our understanding of what's true and what side of an argument we're going to be on based on what we think about somebody else. And I would put it to you that that is really lazy discernment. If I look at an opponent 
in any given debate and I say, okay, there's this guy over there and he's making this argument and I know that there are 10 things in his life that are completely out of line with the truth, out of line with the gospel. This man is, maybe he's an atheist. Maybe he's um, a prosperity gospel teacher. Uh, somebody comes from a uh, another tradition. Maybe he's Catholic. Maybe he's Muslim. Uh, maybe there's a lot of things about this guy's life that I don't like. But that doesn't mean that the phrase and the idea, the concept, the argument that he's making right now isn't true. If that were the case, then all of us are disqualified all the time from being right. We're none of us right about anything because none of us are right about everything. I make mistakes. I have, and I know this because I have changed my opinion over the years about many things. And so, and I think this is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is to lay down my own rights. The way of the cross is the way of the child. Jesus says that, you know, we, if we're going to receive the kingdom, we're going to have to receive it as a child. A child is, is humble. A child is looking to somebody else. He's looking to uh, a father to take care of him. Uh, and so he needs a savior. He needs somebody uh, to look after him. And this is the attitude of the child. The attitude of the arrogant adult uh, will never accept somebody else's help. And uh, because I can do it myself. And uh, this never is going to lead us to truth or happiness or flourishing. Uh, we are dependent on God. We are dependent on one another. And this is the way of the cross. And so when I face an argument that I'm not happy with, I can't just say, oh, I don't like that guy, and therefore I'm going to side on the other side. I have to look at his argument, see if it has integrity, see if it has filled with logical fallacies. You know, is he, is he hitting at me with whataboutism? This is another thing that... Um, uh, a logical fallacy that's that just drives me crazy in the in the current climate it's a very very common uh, objection is whenever somebody puts something forth they'll say well what about this or what about that well what about it um, again they're they're bringing up things that uh, in order to make their case against whatever points being made they're bringing up lots of other things that are not related to this case. You know, in, um, you know it, 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 one of the big examples of this was when Donald Trump first began to run for president. And many people said uh, within the Christian community, we said, wait a minute, this guy is uh, an adulterer. Um, he's, um, I mean, he made, uh, you know, money off of casinos and gambling. Um you know, he's, he's, this is a, this is a really, um, immoral person and therefore we, we can't back him, you know, and the argument against this, you know, we came back with, well, what about, what about Clinton? You know, Bill Clinton was an adulterer at which point I'm like, wait a minute. What, what do you mean? What about Clinton? Uh, we tried to impeach Clinton because of his adultery. And now you're saying, what about Clinton? what Clinton did or didn't do 20 years before is irrelevant to uh, the person that's standing in front of us now. And 
I, I think that the, the whataboutism that continually comes up is always meant as a distraction. And again, I, in, I view a what, whenever I hear a whatabout argument, I, I hear a dishonest argument. It means to me that your argument is so weak and you know it's weak that you can't defend it and therefore you're trying to distract me uh, with other things. I think there's just a few times where uh, a what about argument is valid. You know, if I'm making a case uh, for never lying and saying uh, lying is always bad and you come back at me and say, well, but in this case, didn't you lie and didn't you tell me it was it was the right thing to do? And then I think that's a valid what about argument because I'm not only now, if you came back to me and said, well, what about you? Didn't you lie? And I say, well, I did lie and it was a huge mistake. So that's why I'm telling you lying is bad. So in that case, your what about argument is not valid. But if I not only lied, but made the case that lying was the right thing. And now I'm coming back at you and saying lying is not a good thing. I think you have a valid opportunity for a what about argument. Uh, but the vast majority of what about arguments, um, and by vast majority, I mean like 99% of what about arguments are only about distraction. And to me, it only demonstrates that the person making the argument uh, knows he's got a really weak position. Uh, he can't um, defend his position and therefore he has to distract you with something else. So, um, so I don't have a lot of respect for what about arguments at all. In fact, I consider it to be a key uh, discernment point that I can see that this person is, uh, knows his position is weak. Um, another um, position uh, that I think that we have to address before I, before I call this done, because I should call this podcast done soon because it's getting too long, um, but I think the, a key point that I want to bring out is the whole idea about um, the identity uh, politics of any given situation. So in other words, uh, I, if I identify you with somebody else, then I put you on the wrong side and therefore you're wrong. Uh, they did this to uh, Jimmy Carter some years ago. Uh, Jimmy Carter spoke on a stage was invited to um, speak at an event that had other speakers and the other speakers on that stage uh, believed things that we don't believe and therefore they said therefore Jimmy Carter is completely wrong and he believes things that we don't believe and we will take none of his arguments and positions seriously from now on and uh, again I as soon as I hear that kind of argument uh, and this is the um, uh, guilt by association argument. As soon as I hear guilt by association, my discernment ears prick up and I think, hmm, what are they really opposing here? Um, because obviously, I say obviously, but clearly it's not obvious. Obviously, it should be obvious. Um, if I'm standing next to somebody, either on a stage or in any other situation, it doesn't mean that I believe what they believe. Uh, I stand next to people that believe things that I don't believe all the time. Uh, presumably, in the heat of a debate, I'm standing before somebody who believes something I don't believe. Uh, and, and, and if I quote that person later on, 
It doesn't mean that I agree with everything that they believe. And yet we do this with discernment all the time. If we've decided that we don't like somebody or some position, um, and we have trouble defending against uh, their argument, what we can do is then say, well, didn't you quote this one guy this time, this one time in a paper that you wrote 10 years ago, and wasn't that guy wrong about all these other things that, that happened back then? And therefore, your current position on what you're talking about right now is not valid. That's not a logical sequence that I have any respect for. Um, if I uh, make friends of my enemy, love my enemy even, uh, hang out with my enemy, it doesn't make me my enemy. It doesn't put me on the same uh, footing as him and in the same positions as him. It doesn't mean I believe everything that he believes. And therefore, for you to come at me and say, well... You spoke of this person favorably that one time. Therefore, therefore what? Your logical conclusions are not logical. Okay? And to me, again, that's lazy discernment. In fact, I will put it to you that God gives messages to people that he wants to go out. And the enemy comes in that messenger's life and he messes up some section of his life to invalidate the message that God has given him. It doesn't. Invalidate, invalidate the message that God has given him. If Joel Olstein stands up and says, I'm going to be loving towards my enemies and I'm not going to condemn them, that's not a bad thing just because he's wrong about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is horrible. I hate it. It's a, it's a complete lie to say that if you will just follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy and wealthy all the time. It's not true. It was never a promise given by Jesus. In fact, Jesus promised quite the opposite to us, uh, that we would face difficulties and, and we would have to bear a cross in order to go forward. And so uh, clearly, Joel Olstein is wrong about many, many things. But it doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. So with each idea that he puts out, I need to engage that idea with real discernment and judge it by the cross. Is it lead to self-sacrifice and love and service to others? If it does, then it leads to giving glory to God. At the, and at the end, this is the thing that God wants. I, I would. There's so much more that I could I could go on and talk about. Uh, especially I would want to talk about the immigration debate, but maybe I'm going to have to save that for another time. Uh, but in the meantime, I want you to think about the idea of discernment. How are you practicing discernment? And as you discern what's true and what's not true in this world, what are you judging that on? I would put it to you that the Holy Spirit in you is going to give you the information that you need to determine whether or not somebody else's argument has integrity. And when it doesn't have integrity, that he will give you eyes to see it. The question is, will you choose to see it? Will you take up your cross and be willing to be wrong, be willing to change your mind, and be willing to embrace uncomfortable ideas and uncomfortable people because they are true? May God richly bless you guys.